Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Ontario's party leaders squared off yesterday in the first debate of the election campaign. Who walked away as the winners and losers? Well, we'll talk about that. The 2022 election looms, and it could well be that environmental issues could be the most important part of this election. Mark Winfield, political scientist and professor of environmental studies at York University, will talk to us about that. And Russia has been pummeling the vital port of Odessa in Ukraine, causing fresh fear to displace Ukrainians. What are the implications? We'll talk about economic and, of course, on a global policy with what's happening with the war. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's start off on provincial politics today. Uh, There was a debate yesterday, of course, in North Bay with the, uh, the party leaders, all four of them, as a matter of fact, Mike Schreiner from the Green Party also took part in the debate and uh, it was interesting to hear uh the back and forth on some of this uh, the first debate actually is in the books now and there's another one coming up very shortly but all four main party leaders were dishing out an all lot blame for everybody the province's shortcomings it's your fault your fault your fault not my fault and uh, a lot of finger pointing and well maybe not as much policy as we would like to have heard matt carty reports mr del duca you had your opportunity and you failed. You were the Minister of Transportation. You didn't build absolutely nothing. A fairly tame but a heated conversation at times with a lot of finger pointing between each leader. PC leader Doug Ford not only took shots at the Liberals, he also targeted NDP leader Andrea Horvath over her opposition to the planned Highway 413. I'm about getting it done. I'm about building this you're about province. Your buddy's that's that's exactly what you're about. Even Green Party leader Mike Schreiner got in on the action, pointing out that the other parties have the same ineffective solution solutions to all problems. The Ontario Greens have a plan not to paper over those cracks, but to fix the foundation of this province. Matt Carty, Global News. Interesting to see the leaders paying uh, so much attention to Northern Ontario. It doesn't always happen in some of these provincial uh, election campaigns. Joining us to talk about uh, what happened yesterday and what's going to happen going forward. So pleased to welcome back to the program Peggy Nash. Peggy is the former NDP finance critic and author of the uh, upcoming book Women Winning Office, an activist guide to getting elected. That's available in uh, just a couple of weeks. We'll certainly let you know when it's going to be on the bookshelves. Peggy, good morning. Great to have you back on the show today. Happy to be here. Good day. Yeah, it's fabulous day, and uh, you know, great day for an election campaign. I, we're not that far away, <laughs> three weeks away from the, the big voting day. The first debate yesterday, the fact that it was actually in North Bay, uh, and, and provincial politics uh, traditionally doesn't spend a whole lot of time up there. They kind of figure, okay, that's really NDP and a couple of liberal seats and maybe a couple of Tory seats. They've been promising to do everything, of course, up north over the last 25 or 30 years, and not much goes on up there. Uh, the fact that they had the first debate there and they're starting to talk about building roads and, and mining and things of this nature, uh, is that something that, uh, that Northern Ontarians can kind of get their teeth into and say, finally, they're paying attention to us? Well, Northerners do have some very particular issues. Uh, as you know, Bill, the cost of living up there is even higher than it is yeah. in the south. Uh, And and they have special needs like the roads, for example, in the winter. If they're not passable, people, you know, people can't get health care. They can't uh, they they can't get to work. So so roads are a big issue. And I just mentioned health care. Access to health care is a huge issue because uh, keeping doctors, nurses, other health care workers in the north and making them accessible to people who may live in small or sparse communities, that is also a challenge. So they have particular needs, and and I I'm really happy that that there was a debate that focused specifically on their needs. And so you saw all of the leaders 
uh, in the days prior to the debate, um, pulling out their campaign pledges specifically for the North. So it's good to put a focus on that part of the province. And I know promises were made. I mean, the Premier made a big deal out of the fact that uh, just after he signed the, the deal for the EVs and for the automakers to start investing in here, which is a good news story. We all love that. He started talking about extracting some of the minerals from that area up there, which is going to be very, very important for the, the development of batteries. And, and if we can build the batteries, that's great. So we understand that. But he's taking a rather simplistic approach to it, isn't he, Peggy? I mean, you can't just say, okay, I'm going to build a road there, and then we're going to start mining it. This goes back to the debate about Ring of Fire and, and the indigenous groups that are up there that feel as if uh, governments, past governments, have just kind of rolled over them and said, well, we want that. We don't, we're not going to do a whole lot for you. Just sign this, and, and we'll have a deal. And they're saying, no, there's, there's got to be a further discussion. So the, to, to use the old phrase that the, the premier, that Doug Ford used, you can't just put a shovel in the ground there. You got to pay attention to what the people's concerns up there. Yeah, I mean, that is a good way to put it. You know, it, past examples of uh, the extractive industries are, are, you know, cautionary tales for yeah. local communities, especially indigenous communities, where they didn't get much of the economic benefit, didn't get many of the jobs, and were often left with uh, environmental problems after the fact. So negotiating access to land, uh, negotiating economic opportunities, jobs, uh, funding for communities, there, there have to be community advantages. This just can't be another extraction and then cut and run it's it's got to be uh, a shared success if it's going to proceed especially in this era of of reconciliation uh, but i i think another another point to consider is I, I don't think it's really clear how much of these metals are actually in the ground there um, these are precious metals or metals that are needed, as you point out, for the batteries in, in uh, electric vehicles. But uh, right now, these are mined mainly in other countries. There's a hot competition for it. If we can get these minerals in our own country for our own industry, that would be a huge plus. But it remains to be seen exactly how much of the minerals are there and 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 how quickly we can get access to them. This is not something that you say you're going to do and it happens immediately. There's there's a long ramp up period. Yeah, I've got some discomfort with some of the timelines they've talked about. Just and with that, you're right, right, Peggy. But also about you know the the success uh, to use their phrase of of EVs here in Ontario. It's great that they're going to build them here. That's fabulous, and that's that's a great news story because it's going to mean more jobs. But they're saying, yeah, and in, in five or six years, we'll have thirty percent of the the drivers are going to be EVs. It's, it's at like what five or six percent right now. Uh, there's a lot of work yet to be done here. But I guess during campaigns, they just want to give you the good news and not the you know the blood, sweat, and tears that's going to have to go into it. That's pretty typical. There was a, we played the clip just before you joined us of uh, of uh, Ford going after Del Duca with uh, you had your. It was kind of like I, I guess he was trying to capture that Brian Mulroney onto John Turner thing. You had your chance, and you could have done something. Uh, about building roads, etc. It's an interesting quote, and it was he, the, for, uh, the former, well, because there's no premier technically right now, uh, but Ford trying to create this idea that, look at, you know, don't elect these guys again because they messed it up. What's the quote here? You were the Minister of Transportation. You didn't build absolutely nothing. Aside from the bad grammar I, I, of the quote there, it just seems as if he wants to remind people once again that nobody's paid much attention to it. But that's you're opening a Pandora's box if you do that because there's a, there's guilt in all three parties when it comes to that. A lot of people have made promises, and not a whole lot has happened up there. 
Yeah, I, I mean, there was a lot of finger pointing going on. Yeah. Uh, certainly, um, Mr. Del Duca, you know, he was the transport minister. He's not the person who cancelled Ontario Northland, but he didn't bring it back either. I mean, so that point was made and uh, about the lack of building roads. Um, and, but as Andrea Horvath pointed out, uh, the... Um, Mr. Del Duca seemed to want to look to the future and ignore that he was part of a government uh, that had been in power for 15 years. But on the other hand, um, Mr. Ford was trying to argue that he's going to do all these things, but ignoring that he has, in fact, been the premier for four years. So in a campaign, there's a lot of, you know, parties often want to ignore their record and point to the future, unless that record has something really stellar that they can point to. And in some cases, obviously, uh, there are those things, but they want to ignore the failures or the lack of action and just look to the future. So trying to hold uh, leaders to account or parties to account, uh, that you know, that's an important part of debate. It's not it's not a low blow. It's not a personal attack. It's saying, listen, here's your record. I think that's important for voters to remember that. There's an interesting twist to this yesterday, and we've talked about this particular program in the past. Uh, it's the Ontario Disability Support Program. They've been crying out for more money. I mean, it's, it's terribly underfunded. People that are under duress of their own circumstance don't have enough money to buy groceries and pay rent at the same time. Andrea Horvath and the NDP came out with their proposal, uh, Del Duca as well, and just before the debate, uh, the PCs uh, promised to increase Ontario disability support by only 5% annually. I think uh, the others were 15 or 20%. So it's not uh, as much as the others. But I, I kind of got the sense, Peggy, it was something they sort of wrote on the back of an envelope on the way to the podium for the debate. Like, oh, shit, we better get in the game here. What are we going to do, guys? And Because it, it wasn't even in the budget. You would have thought if they were going to do this, Minister Bethlen Falvey would have mentioned something about this in the budget deliberations and the budget presentation. Yeah, I, I agree. It clearly seemed to be an add-on, and that tells me that they must have been getting a lot of pressure. I, I mean, uh, I don't know about you, but I remember back to the days of Mike Harris when uh, the government really went after people on social assistance and disability as, uh, assistance, disability income. Uh, they, they in fact, were demonized as, as kind of unworthy of public Malingers. support. yeah. Pardon me? Malingers. Malingers. Yeah, right. So um, I think that that kind of lingers with the Conservative Party. And uh, But, you know, Doug Ford, during the pandemic, seemed to undergo a change, uh, a change of branding, if nothing else, where in, in instead of being this kind of hard right Trump-like figure, he has, you know, he became more, more cooperative, working with the federal government, working with other parties, uh, showing a more emotional, compassionate side. And I think that uh, really, it helped soften his image and I think increased his popularity significantly. Uh, remember when he got booed at the Raptors victory? I think yeah. that, that, that really marked him and he, he, you know, embraced a new approach. And I think he tried to display that yesterday where he's kind of the every man, uh, has compassion, um, but that he's still a fiscal conservative and uh, is, is minding the books 
but that he actually gets things done. I think that's the image he was he was trying to portray. And yes, this is something that was an afterthought, but it is a change of direction for his party. It certainly is. Uh, he did get flustered and, and more than a little angry, I guess, when uh, when they started hammering about uh, the pandemic uh, and, and the way in which his government responded to it. I, I know, and we all know, uh, they'd just as soon not bring that up at all during the campaign uh, because there were some missteps. He always told us he's just following the science, but we talked to the scientists a lot at the time, Peggy, and, you know, the Peter Unis and others that were saying, don't do this or do this, this, and this is our best advice. And, and he would do the total opposite once he got to the podium that day. So he didn't always follow the signs. There was clearly some political motivation be, be, you know, in, 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 at play here with some of these things. Is that going to come back to bite him, or have we, as, as voters, moved on from that? That's a, that's a good question. You know, I think all governments uh, at, at all levels of, of the country uh, made the best decisions that they thought they could at the time, and yet we have seen... Uh, significant problems uh, across the country. The disaster of long-term care and the thousands of deaths that that could have been preventable if a different approach had been taken. I don't know that there's a perfect role model uh, of, of behavior during the pandemic. Scientists will argue they give advice. It's up to the politicians to make decisions. And then those politicians have to take responsibility. If politicians promised, uh, I think at one point, Andrea Horvath uh, went after Doug Ford saying he promised, I think it was an iron ring around yeah. uh, long-term care homes. And she said that she, she challenged, she says that was, that was a porous ring. And, and I think that's a fair calling to account because clearly not enough was done. There wasn't enough, I think, across the country, genuine respect for the people who provide the very difficult work of long-term care. Uh, they're not paid enough. They often don't get enough hours or benefits. So they travel from you know, home to home. And during a pandemic, of course, that spread disease. And if they weren't getting sick pay, if they got sick, they many of them still had to come to work or they couldn't feed their families. So these were clear weaknesses in our system that could have been and and should have been fixed especially as we went from wave to wave in the pandemic and yet they persisted and more people lost their lives governments exactly. need to be held accountable for that yeah and you can figure that's going to come up uh, time and time again in the upcoming debates uh peggy we got to leave it there for now uh as always thanks so much for the time today we'll talk again down the road as this uh, unfolds thanks bill take care you too. Peggy Nash, former NDP finance critic, of course. Uh, her book, uh, Women Winning Office, An Activist Guide to Getting Elected, uh, is going to be available in just a couple of weeks. And we'll certainly know when you, they uh, have that one on the shelves. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We were talking about the, well, the first debate, which was last night in North Bay with all the Ontario leaders heading towards the election on June 2nd. And there was some discussion about environmental issues, but i surprised I thought there'd be a lot more. Uh, because it's been a key issue well, all through the, uh, the the Ford government, the four years that they've been in power right now. 
And, you know, with the proposed building of highways through Greenbelt territories and, and you know, the cancellation of, of cap and trade back when they first got on, I, I thought a lot more people would be getting upset about this. Uh, and I'm hoping that's going to be the case uh, because the, the, these issues or the impact that even some of the other issues are going to have on the environment and, and climate change uh, have to be front and center when we're deciding just what government we want to go under for the next four years. There's a great piece in theconversation.com that talks about this. Uh, it's called Doug Ford's Poor Record on Environment and Climate Change. And uh, the author uh, joins us right now. Uh, Mark Winfield is a professor and a political scientist of environmental studies with York University and uh, joins us on the program to talk about this. Uh, professor, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. Well, great to be here, Bill. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, I read the piece a, a number of times and I think it's, it's bang on. Uh, you started listing a, a number of the, the concerns that we, the public, have had uh, with this government, and uh, almost on a, uh, day one, I guess, you know, when they, can they canceled cap and trade, uh, he canceled the subsidy for EVs, took out all the charging stations, renewable energy projects, etc. Yet now that he's, he's dissolved uh, the legislature and we're heading to the polls in just a couple of weeks right now, he seems to have this uh, this religious revival, and now he's, he's talking as, as an environmentalist, at least he's trying to anyway. Uh, but some of the proposals uh, tend to belie that that idea when you start talking about where highways are going to be built and why they're being built, et cetera. Uh, talk to us about your motivation for this piece and, and, and where you see us heading because of this. Well, the, the piece was just to sort of set a, a baseline, a reminder of, of where we've been in the last four years, uh, in part because what's happened in many ways has been so overwhelming, it's almost impossible to keep track of, of where we're, what's, what's happened and where we're at. And the reality, though, it's, it's been quite remarkable in terms of the scope of things that have been affected. And really, in many cases, the extent to which the, the, the framework we've had for managing environmental issues has been moved back um, 50, in some cases, something like 70 years, almost sort of back to where we were at the end of World War II. Um, and as you mentioned, going forward, the trajectories that we're on are, are not good. Um, the highways in particular in the GTA, the 413 and the Bradford Bypass are getting quite a bit of attention, and they should because they're problematic on, on many, many different fronts in terms of the direct impacts, but also how much traffic and therefore how much greenhouse gases are going to be generated by them. And then the other part that, that is particularly disturbing and has not got quite as much attention has been what's happening in the electricity sector, where it looks like we're on track to a fairly massive increase in greenhouse gas emissions and also smog precursors over the next two decades, about a 600% increase in emissions there. So we're, we're on the wrong trajectory, particularly in terms of greenhouse gases. We're going up, not down. And, and by the way, and I'm going to reiterate something that I've talked about when we've had these discussions in the past, and this is not a partisan issue. And it, it, people may dismiss that and say, oh, they just don't like the conservatives. That's not the issue at all, because conservatives can be environmentalists too, and have been. You know, the surveys we've seen here, I mean, Brian Mulroney is still considered to be the best environmental prime minister we've had. A lot of it had to do, I'm sure, with his, his uh, legislation towards acid rain. But he, he, he understood that. And he, that, you know, whatever you agreed or disagreed about whether he did. Uh, David Crombie, who was a minister uh, for the conservatives on a federal level. Uh, and by the way, I had David uh, on the just the day after he resigned from the Greenbelt Commission because he said, I just can't stand what this government's doing. They're desecrating uh, the Greenbelt in this province and they're desecrating the legislation. As you know, he walked out and said, that's it. And a number of other board members did too. 
So this is this is not about left wing or right wing. This is about us and Mother Earth and, and the impact it's going to have not just on the Earth but on our health as well. No, absolutely. And and as you mentioned, Mr. Mulroney was was instrumental in, in fact, the original negotiation of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change and and many mm-hmm. other things. And indeed, parts of the legislation that have been dismantled over the past four years are things that were put in place by Bill Davis yeah. uh, and even John Robarts in some cases. I mean, this is there is a long conservative tradition of engagement around the environment, but the current government does seem to have broken with that very, very decisively. Um, and, you know, we we have lots of evidence that we're in trouble. We keep hearing from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. We hear from the Federal Environmental Commissioner. We hear from the Auditor General in Ontario, all telling us we're, we're on the wrong track and that the consequences are going to be fairly dire. Uh, but so far, um, we haven't seen much of an effective response from the current provincial government. And there was a pattern that was set up, and this does go back, as you mentioned, to, to those conservative governments of Bill Davis and, and John Robarts, who had the vision. I mean, you know, the environmental issues weren't talked about a whole lot then, but these people listened to the experts at that time. And, and part of the system they set up here was, was conservation authorities, local conservation authorities, uh, because who better than the people that live in those communities uh, to give advice on how environmental policies should be undertaken. And the legislation they passed uh, in this last couple of months of their, of their government essentially took all the power away from conservation authorities. And, and these are the people, in, in, well, in both London Middlesex, with our listeners at CFPL and here in Hamilton, uh, they understand the impact that uh, that these, some of these issues are having on watersheds, and it's not just the Thames River running through London, and it's not just uh, you know uh, the fact that we're near Lake Ontario and Hamilton. There's a whole water table that's underneath us here that can be impacted by these sorts of things, and they don't seem to take that into consideration. No, and and indeed it is quite remarkable because, of course, the the conservation authorities actually go back to 1946. Yeah. Uh, they're one of the first things that were done after the end of World War II, and indeed their origins go back all the way into the Depression. The government just seems blind to this, and particularly you know, one of the areas where the impacts of climate change are becoming more evident and acute in Ontario have been around flooding, which is, which is fundamentally one of the things that conservation authorities do. The other area that I've had people raise concerns about as well is, is more generally on water that uh, the conservation authorities play an important role in the protection of sources of drinking water. And the more and more their role is marginalized, uh, the more risk is being embedded there. There's other things that have happened as well that have, have increased those risks. And the government seems, well, not, not even unresponsive you know, has been actively dismantling frameworks which and, and institutions which were designed specifically to try and deal with these problems and more specifically to identify where there were problems or potential problems and then act to head them off before they turn into disasters. And, and there was an impact. I mean, you know, because I know I get emails Every time we have one of these discussions, Professor, and, oh, you're just tree huggers and, you know, the, you're, you're anti-progress. And that's not the case at all. As a matter of fact, the re- one of the reasons those authority, conservation authorities were set up uh, was to work in cooperation. Uh, it's, it's, you know, we're not going to say don't do anything, don't build anything, etc. Uh, but it's got to be done with the environment in mind. And, and it's got to be a contributing factor to say, OK, how is this going to impact us? And there are many, many examples where something has been proposed, whether it's a roadway or, or, or any kind of a, a construction site, 
And they sit down with the conservation authority and they find a way that's going to be compatible with both goals here. And so it can be done. But when you simply take those people out of the equation and say, okay, guys, build what you want, where you want, and we're okay with that. That's, that's what got us into this mess in the first place, isn't it? Well, it is. I mean, it is one of the reasons the conservation authorities were, were created was, was because of the consequences of inappropriate development. I mean, in this case, I mean, the CAs are basically compelled to approve things even when they know they're a problem, uh, particularly around hazard lands and places that are subject to flooding. Uh, if the minister issues one of these zoning orders, then the conservation authorities, for example, are required to issue the permits. Um, I mean, this is this is not just bad environmental management. This this sort of moves into the realm of, of uh, safety and hazards um, and putting the public at risk. Uh, so it is it is we're sort of been pushed backwards. You know this you know into because when you push environment far enough, what you run into at its core is is public safety and public health issues, and and that's kind of where we're we're pushing back into as we weaken these 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 rules i mean as you say the conservation authorities have have been very good about working with proponents but also saying look you can't build there because because that site's subject to flooding and we're going to have to do something to make sure that kind of problem doesn't happen but you know i think this is part of a larger pattern on the part of of the government which is it's, it's not a very forward-looking government it tends to be very reactive in its approach um, it waits for there to be a problem before it does something. And and with issues like the environment or climate change, that's not a good thing because usually by the time you're faced with, with it being obvious, it, it's too late and you've got a very big problem on your hands. And, and I know, you know, the comeback is going to be, well, look, at come on, they've made the commitment to electro, electric vehicles and that's good. That's, that's a positive move. We like that. Uh, and, you know, but, but you can't rest your, on your laurels and simply say, well, okay, you know, then we've got that covered. We can check that box. Yeah, we're environmentally sensitive. Not really, uh, because of so many other things that they've done. And it's, and as you said, it's destructing programs that were already in place to deal with some of these issues. And, and you know, I, I, that's what I said at the beginning. I wish there was more debate and discussion about this to talk about, uh, you know, implementing some of these things again. It's, it's not too late. But there's going to come a time, you know, we're looking at the floods in Manitoba that are going on right now. Uh, Do they forget that two years ago the same thing was happening here? I mean, the premier himself uh, went up to where his cottage is in Muskoka and it, it was all underwater. He went to the Ottawa area where the same thing is going on. Connect the dots here, people. I mean, that's that's what's happening when you take the protections away. Mother Nature fights back. Well, I'm we're going to find ourselves having to reinvent uh many of the things that have been demolished in in the last few years um precisely because the problems that they were designed to prevent are, are going to come and, and, and we're going to start to see them again i mean in fairness yes they did move on greening the steel sector um yep. and they have taken an interest in electric vehicle manufacturing although interestingly doing nothing to actually promote adoption of electric vehicles in ontario so there's, but I think in those cases, uh, my best explanation is, is I think some folks on the industry did have a talk with them and did get through on those fronts that if, if you wanted to retain what's left of manufacturing in Ontario, you're going to have to accept that there is, there is an energy transition happening here and that you're going to have to respond. But it's been limited to those relatively few things. And overall, 
particularly on greenhouse gas emissions, the, the province is on precisely the wrong trajectory. We are, we are basically planning for a massive increase in greenhouse gas emissions from the electricity sector, especially about a 600% increase. Um, this is not where we want to be going at, at this stage of the process. Well, and we touched on this uh, just a few minutes ago in another segment uh, about, you know, proposed developments in Northern Ontario, and they did talk about that in the debate yesterday, but very little discussion uh, about the this, the impact that's going to have on some of the Indigenous people up there. Critical mineral strategy, great idea. Yeah, let's get that stuff out of the ground. What's that going to do to the water table and drinking water? I mean, how many how many areas up there are still on drinking water advisories because of, of the, the impact that uh, that some of those past programs have had? Uh, you know, that's got to be part of the discussion, doesn't it, Professor? Well, it, it, it both needs to be in terms of justice, but I mean, legally, it also has to be because um, the government does have an obligation to consult with the affected Indigenous communities. And there is already a history of impacts associated with mining in the far north. Uh, we have a diamond mine where there have been some significant issues around mercury. So the impacts there could be very, very significant and, and wider as well in the sense that um, the boreal region where the ring of fire is, is also a huge storehouse of greenhouse gases and a huge greenhouse gas sink. So disturbance there can have a lot of wider effects as well. Uh, but clearly the interests of indigenous communities need to be considered there. I say there are legal obligations on the part of the government to have to consult meaningfully uh, where Indigenous interests and rights or treaty rights are affected. Um, and if you look at the critical minerals strategy, they don't, they don't have very much to say about that at all. It looks like it was written by the mining industry. And I think if you're going to get buy-in, then you're going to have to find accommodations with the Indigenous communities, and you're going to have to think seriously about what are the consequences of these types of developments in the far north, and are these choices we want to make. Well, and, and, and we got to finish it off here. We're just about out of time, but that's a very cogent point here. Uh, and it goes back to that old cliche. Uh, if you're going to, you know, cut corners on this, it costs a lot more to fix it once you create a problem. Uh, you know, I mean, you may think, well, we don't have all the money to do all these things and put all these restrictions in place. But the damage that they cause is going to cost a lot more and take a lot more time. And, and some of it, you know, it might be irreparable mm -hmm. damage. So let's just have that discussion. And I hope uh, your piece in theconversation.com actually uh, uh, serves as a catalyst for that sort of debate and discussion. Uh, Professor, pleasure to have you on the program today. Thank you so much for the time. Well, great. Thank you very much, Bill. Good talking great to you. Great to have you with us. Uh, that's uh, Professor Mark Winfield from York University. And say, go to theconversation.com webpage, and uh, you can read that and some other great pieces. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I get an update on what's happening with Ukraine right now, because there was a, a lot of uh, activity, of course, over the weekend. Uh, the Prime Minister uh, and his entourage, uh, Deputy Prime Minister Freeland and Foreign Affairs Minister uh, Jolie, uh, were over there with him. And also the First Lady from the United States, Joe Biden, uh, talk, went over there. And uh, it's, I, I guess, a, a kind of a show of force and a show of unity with uh, the Ukraine situation not getting a whole lot better. Although there seem to be uh, some pretty strong signs about the way that the Ukraine uh, army and their forces are starting to push back against the Russians once again. Notwithstanding that, the head of the United Nations is now repeating his call for Russia to end its war in Ukraine. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres spoke after visiting a refugee center in neighboring Moldova. This tragedy demonstrates that uh, war is a senseless thing. 
and that this war must stop. Uh, there is no military solution for the problems uh, that uh, we are facing. So what's going to happen going forward? There was concern, of course, with Victory Day in Russia earlier this week uh, that they may increase uh, their attacks. Uh, they may actually officially declare war. Uh, that didn't happen, although uh, we're hearing that there's a lot more activity around Odessa, which uh, as another uh, port city in Ukraine. To try to uh, add some clarity to this, so pleased to welcome back to the program Thomas Hughes, a postdoctoral fellow with the Center for International and Defense Policy at Queen's University. Thomas, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you back with us. Not at all. Delighted to speak to you again. Let's talk about a little bit about the uh, the implications of what happened over the weekend with the Prime Minister's visit, raising the flag and reopening the Canadian Embassy. First Lady Biden over there. Uh, Nancy Pelosi was over there just uh, mm -hmm. a few days before that. Uh, it's a show of unity, to be sure, right now. But uh, is it also a reminder to Putin that we're not going away, meaning the Allies? Uh, that yeah, absolutely it is. Absolutely it is. Uh, and, and the fact that we, we saw um, such political figures... Uh, in Ukraine itself is a real show of confidence as well, I think. It's a, it's a real indication that um, there was a belief that, that they would be safe there, frankly. Uh, and that's remarkable when we go back even just a few weeks uh, to what, the, the, the shape of the conflict at, at the time. I'm uh, impressed and surprised that, that they had the, the uh, belief that, the, that they would not be um, subjected to attack when they were there, and um, that they understood that the defensive structures that were in place would mean that that, that attack was unlikely. So uh, in that sense as well, which isn't talked about too much, I think it's an extremely impressive uh, activity. Well, and as I was as well, watching some of that stuff, because it was only, what, two, three weeks ago, Thomas? I mean, the, the Russians were on the doorstep. I mean, they were at Kiev, and they were actually in the suburbs. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's remarkable. And it, it, it really is a sign of the extent to which that conflict has has changed and of course it was a russian decision to um retreat from kiev i think we, we shouldn't get past that uh, but yeah. they took that decision to retreat and reallocate those forces because they were increasingly aware that the cost to them of taking kiev was going to be uh, catastrophically high from the russian perspective uh, and so that that was a, a really remarkable um, feat of of fighting from the Ukrainian military. I, I think we we often talk about uh, capitals falling as uh, as much a symbol as as anything else. And and had Kiev fallen into Russian hands, it would have um, made a, a a huge difference to the narrative of the conflict, if if nothing else. So stopping them from taking Kiev was was really significant. And then uh, now seeing embassies reopen in the city, as you said, it's it's a huge show. Of, of confidence in um, Ukraine's ability to continue to fight. And it's a huge signal uh, that there is going to be this continued provision of equipment uh, and money and um, humanitarian aid and, and other aspects of support. And that's hugely important. I, I mean, I, I kind of think it's, it's vital that we keep saying this. This is not a conflict that is going away. And Ukraine will need... Uh, considerable support going forward in all sorts of different forms. Um, even if the, the fighting were to stop tomorrow, it is going to need um, real support from us. Uh, and it, it's very important that we continue to demonstrate that we are committed to doing that. And it's also important that we do that um, at home as well. Uh, it's also important, I think, that we prime our 
um, our uh, domestic audiences that, that we are going to be standing with Ukraine. Uh, and this is going to be a, a centerpiece of, of certain aspects of foreign policy for, for a considerable amount of time. Have we been able to figure out what strategy the Russians are using no. here? You know, it's been weeks and weeks and weeks. Now, and I'm, I'm not trying to be flippant, but I mean, you know, it's it's yeah. not, I mean, you know, when they took over Czechoslovakia in 1968, the tanks rolled into Prague and it was over in, in a matter of hours. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I guess they had the same intention. Uh, but yeah. they seemed, at first they would, you know, they're heading towards Kiev uh, and then it was Mariupol and then it was, and now, well, no, we're going to head back over here. Uh, yeah. It just kind of seems like, okay, what are we going to do today, guys, instead of looking after yeah. an overall plan? It is. It is very difficult to see, isn't it? I mean, it, it feels like we're sort of we went through exactly as you said. Plan A, roll into Kiev in, in three days. Plan B was okay, fine. We'll we'll take it a week or a fortnight to get into Kiev. Plan C was oh crikey, we're not going to be able to manage that. Let's shift to the east and the and the south. Um, and and Plan D at the moment, I I think what we're we're seeing is this shift to uh, a war of attrition. Essentially, we're seeing. Um, concentrations of, of Russian forces along much more particular axes with much more particular points of focus. I, I think the overarching aim probably hasn't changed in the long term in terms of, of the political alignment of Ukraine. But in terms of this conflict itself, I think we can probably simply look back to those initial suggested aims of creating um, this region of eastern Ukraine that is independent from the rest of Ukraine, that is likely to be Russian-leaning, although technically that might be uh, the, the population will decide that. It also seems possible that um, there's efforts to try to um, take more of southern Ukraine and ensure that link-up between Crimea uh, and the Donbass, uh, potentially reaching further uh, westwards as well towards Moldova, but but I think we have to see where things go in the east, and before we really start to see whether the number of troops that are uh, kind of massing towards the south really get leverage westward as well. A couple of things that, and you and I have had these discussions over the last couple of weeks too. First of all, as you mentioned, we don't lose sight of the fact that Russia is still a nuclear power. Uh, mm -hmm. They haven't used that yet, but it's always there because they have a huge arsenal. But uh, I think. What happened here in the last number of weeks is is the Ukraine forces have dispelled the myth that this is a super army. These are well trained, uh, you know. They, they don't have eight million commandos there, which begs the next question here, uh, because they seem to be focusing, as we mentioned, uh, at Odessa. Of course, Mariupol that war, mm -hmm. that battle is still going on. But the question, overarching question, with all this is, can they hold those territories even if they win them? Because some of the mm -hmm. stories we're hearing now, where they have captured some towns and cities. And a week yeah. later, the Ukraines take them back. Yeah, absolutely. I, I am frankly astonished that, that, that Ukraine has been able to do that. And it's a huge testament not only to uh, the Ukrainian armed forces, uh, primarily, of course, the Ukrainian armed forces, but the, the equipment that they have been delivered and the ability of uh, other countries to provide them with the equipment that they needed and that they asked for. I think that's been, been really important. So I think it's a it's a great question. The, the simple reality is, I'm sure you, you, you know, is that it is, um, in general, more difficult to take ground than it is to hold ground. Uh, and for Ukraine to take back um, gains if Russia simply decides to sit in and dig in uh, is going to be difficult. That said, the, the problem for Russia is that where they decide to dig in might end up looking like that real 
failure. You know, if they decide to to dig in without achieving anything that looks like their objectives, then that that is not a, a good sign for for Russia for the Russian military. And again, as you suggested, it really suggests that the Russian military is not as capable as they would uh, like it to be. I think it will be. We we can't underestimate as well that the the reality that Ukrainian forces are are not large uh, in the grand scheme of things. They don't have a huge amount of heavy equipment, and that would con- need to continue to be provided if they are going to to push uh, Russian forces back in a more general sense, rather than in some of those. Uh, limited operations. But what's been fascinating over the last maybe week or, or so is what we've started to see is Ukraine taking this approach of uh, shaping operations, which is more um, perhaps more limited actions in certain areas, which can be potentially leveraged again in the future in different places. And I think that's been fascinating. It's, for example, the, the, the sinking uh, of the Moskova vessel was, um, it was a wonderful piece of targeting but what it does is it enables more Ukrainian action if they want to do that in the future uh, and I think we're starting to see that now and it's going to be fun really really interesting to see how Ukraine starts to leverage leverage some of those points of advantage that they've developed over the last uh, couple of weeks and, and how they see themselves as being able to push back Russia and at what point in that whole process does Zelensky um, re- uh, re-engage meaningfully in a dialogue uh, about how we can negotiate to end end this conflict because again we always have to remember that the fighting isn't isn't in a vacuum it's happening to try and create an environment in which those negotiations can result in the political outcome that either side are looking for in a situation like this i'm always intrigued you know because we hear stories from time to time when there are troubled regions uh, the mm. NATO forces or Canadian forces, in, in some cases, as it was here, are, are in there and they're on a, They're only there to train. We figure, oh, well, what kind mm. of recommitment is that? But that that was a story from about a year and a half, two years ago, mm-hmm. and I guess we're seeing the the benefits of that right now. I mean, this is a very very uh, tactical uh, mm-hmm. war that that Ukraine is fighting right now. I'm, I'm not saying they're winning, uh, but mm. they're not losing as much as people thought they would, or as fast as they would. Uh, and, and and with the added support here from NATO, you know, they send these things over here, and apparently, you know, the Ukraine army knows how to use these things already because mm-hmm. they've been trained on them. Absolutely, I completely agree with you. It, it is a, a great example of where that training has been extremely helpful. I mean, the the reality is that there are an awful lot of troops from NATO countries and Canada and elsewhere who are um, working with um, other militaries and and engaging in um, kind of military swaps, if you like, and 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 training. Uh, training alongside as well as um, uh, providing that training service to to other forces. Uh, And it it has been extremely important in Ukraine. The Ukrainian military over the last probably maybe five years, it's it's a a rough figure that, but but over the last few years, the Ukrainian military has been uh, advancing really effectively. And it's perhaps getting into the weeds a little bit here, but it's the the structure of the Ukrainian military, particularly around their non-commissioned officer corps, uh, has been enhanced in a way that we just have not seen actually in the Russian armed forces. And that's made a real difference to their flexibility, um, to their ability to engage uh, productively um, in a very uh, difficult environment uh, and engage flexibly. And also uh, in being able to adapt rapidly to different equipment. I mean, I think we can uh, both understate and overstate how difficult it is to 
um, master a new piece of equipment. But the reality is that Ukraine have been very effective in, in taking equipment that they've not been used to necessarily or they've had only limited experience with. And not only learning to use it, but learning to fight with it. And those are two very different things. But they've been able seemingly to, to, to fight very effectively. Uh, part of that seems to be, as, as going back to your, your previous point, some fairly silly errors, for want of a better expression, amongst the, the Russian approach to the war. Um, there's some very odd tactical decisions that seem to be being made. And what's remarkable is that we, we haven't necessarily seen rapid learning within the Russian military uh, to overcome those, those challenges that they've faced and the mistakes that they've made. And I think that goes back to um, that, that non-commissioned officer corps as well and the, the training that the Ukrainian military has received as opposed to, to the Russian military, that, that Ukraine has adapted very, very well. All the conversations, all the, the, the uh, reports that come out from foreign fighters in Ukraine as well talk about how amazing it's been that the, the Ukrainian military has adapted so rapidly um, to, to the environment that they're fighting in. Sources, and, and again, you know, a lot of these stories are coming out and they're unconfirmed, but the fact that they're out there mm -hmm. indicates that there may be a, uh, some element of truth to these. And we're hearing from British uh, intelligence, we're hearing from Ukraine mm -hmm. intelligence and Ukraine military. Uh, and one report, uh, Thomson, that just dumped, jumped out at me uh, is that they're showing uh, that, uh, as, as, as you just mentioned, uh, if they defeat Russians or the Russians pull back because of the, the resistance they're getting, oftentimes they're, they're they were leaving things behind, and and yeah. uh, we're getting stories now that uh, that the Ukrainians are saying that look at some of the musicians that they have seen here date back to the Soviet era. Uh, and now I'm not suggesting they're running out of ammunition on the mm -hmm. Russian side, but it, it does indicate that they did not anticipate this was going to go this long. And it's you know it's and they've used an awful lot of their arsenal already mm -hmm. on on Ukraine areas. Uh, and, and you can't just go to the you know the local Walmart and buy more of them. No. I mean, it takes a while to restock these things. No, absolutely. Um, it's it's been remarkable to see uh, what equipment has actually been used, uh, and I, I would be fascinated to be a fly on the wall uh, in, within some of the intelligence conversations, trying to un within the UK and, and Ukraine and, and Canada and the US and the like to to try and understand. Um, how the pre-war estimates of Russian capability and equipment matches up with the reality of what we've seen. And, and just mentioning the uh, attacks on Odessa in the last couple of days that, that you talked about at the top of the show, I think um, what was really interesting there is we start, it, it, it looked to me like um, it's possible that we're seeing some not particularly precise targeting uh, in in Odessa, so some of it was very precise, but but other parts it, it kind of struck me as slightly strange that the, the targeting um, within Odessa, which starts to suggest that perhaps the precision of the attack maybe was lacking. And we also know that precision guided munitions are really really expensive, and one has to be uh, it's, a, it's a strange thing to say. One has to be very careful when one uses one. I, possibly apocryphal story from uh, many years ago about the the use of um, U.S. precision-guided munitions in um, uh, against terrorist targets, and and the reality was that they were launching hundreds of thousands of dollars um, against adversaries who were carrying if hundreds of uh, dollars worth of equipment, and whether that was cost-effective. And once Russia has um, used up its arsenal of precision-guided munitions, uh, then that also creates a very very difficult situation uh, in that. Um, the, the potential for damage to targets that were not 
of the initial military value is is much higher. And we've all already seen some appalling um, video and, and images and testimony coming out of Ukraine. And, and the idea of um, non-guided munitions being used even more than they currently are is is not a good one uh, at all. But and it's also, of course, a, a challenge to know how much modern equipment Russia has been keeping back, how much they, they've had in reserve, uh, and how much they, they've already used. And we, we simply don't really know that at the moment. But if you go to um, some of the, the uh, open source intelligence and information um, services that are around, there's a, Oryx uh, has a fantastic database of, of confirmed equipment losses from Ukraine and, and Russia. And it is remarkable when you look at the Russian losses, just to see how many of those pieces of equipment were at least initially created, if they might have been updated, but they were initially created in the Cold War by the Soviet Union. And just seeing that is a real testament to um, the challenge of creating and the expense of creating a modernized military force. It takes an awful lot of money, as we've seen from lots of um, budgets from various democratic governments over the last few years. It, it's, it's not a popular thing to do, and it, no, it, it is expensive. Uh, we're just about out of time, but just to give our listeners perspective on this, on the other side, uh, President Biden signed a bipartisan uh, deal on Monday, of course, to reboot the uh, land lease program that actually started mm. with FDR and Churchill back in World War II, <laughs> yep. which essentially means whatever you need, just tell us and it'll be there. Uh, you know, there's no time sensitivity to this. We got lots mm. of stuff here, and that's essentially what he's told Zelensky. So we'll see how that rolls out, too. Thomas, always a pleasure. Mm. Thank you so much for this today. Uh, not at all. Great to speak to you. Thanks Take for care. having me on. Thomas Hughes uh, from Queen's University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review. 911.